and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The last Sunday morning, when Amy and I were having coffee before getting ready for church, Eleanor woke up and came downstairs. And she often has really deep questions about things. I blame our school on this. She's got a great theological mind. I was explaining to her that that Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, and that we were going to be talking a little bit more about the Holy Spirit at church. And at 7 o'clock in the morning, she nailed me with a zinger of a question, especially for a five-year-old. She says, if the Father is God, and Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, how is there only one God? Yowza! <laughs> I need more than one cup of coffee to get into that at a five-year-old level. I wasn't about to start teaching her the Athanasian Creed. Of course, that's my first impulse, but that's not a good way to take it with a little one. See, it's a good question. It's a great question, one that has been debated and explained and examined for 2,000 years. It's a biblical teaching. And certainly we hear the what of the doctrine in the pages of Holy Scripture, but more than a few have been frustrated that we don't receive the how. It is the mystery of faith. The mystery of the how of it all. How is the Father God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God, and yet there are not three gods but one God. We believe, teach, and confess the doctrine of the Holy Trinity because Holy Scripture does. But we are not privy to the innermost nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nor are we privy to things not revealed to us through God's Word. We're always tempted to use analogies for the Trinity, especially when explaining it to children. And some analogies can be helpful. But all analogies break down at a certain point. The one my pastor used when I was a kid was the apple analogy. Maybe you're familiar with this. There's the core of an apple, there's the flesh of an apple, and there's the skin. And they're all apple, but they're all different. That works well until you nitpick things to death like I do, realizing that the skin is not a full apple all by itself. Neither are the other parts. It's not as if God were like the 1980s cartoon Voltron, where several robots joined together to form one giant samurai robot. Each person of the Holy Trinity is fully God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. And we were talking about this with Amy's grandpa Sunday night. He was Professor Rosso, as he was always called at the seminary, taught there for over 40 years and is an expert on C.S. Lewis. He told us about Lewis's analogy of the line, whereby a line, like on the page, is a, a one-dimensional object. If you extend that line to have four sides, you end up with a square, which is a two-dimensional object. If you were to extend that further into a cube, you would have a three-dimensional object, and yet there are not three objects, but one object. What is going on with this thing? This is its last chance. Just when I get ready to replace it, it starts acting up again. So with a line, you have, you know, just a single unity. A square is a unity, and the cube is a unity, but they extend out further in complexity. And I'll tell you, that makes my head hurt. It's complicated. It's complex. It's heavy stuff, not something you're really going to bring up to a five-year-old or to your new friend who is new to the Christian faith. 
What it demonstrates is that we cannot satisfactorily answer the question of how on this side of eternity. We can, however, ask a different question that would perhaps be even more beneficial to us. This question centers on Jesus. Who is Jesus? Or in the way that the Jews in our gospel reading this morning put it, who does Jesus make himself out to be? The answer to this question provides the key to understanding the Trinity, but it does more than that. It is the most important question that we could possibly ask, period. There are a lot of correct answers to the question, who is Jesus? Peter gave a great answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christian, I'm going to turn this off. Would you make sure that the pulpit mic is activated? Check, check, check. Okay, is that... Uh, Don will help you out with it. Crispy, crunchy, peanut buttery microphone. Peter gives a great answer to this. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Bingo. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's great. Heaven has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. John the baptizer gives a great answer to who Jesus is. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thomas, a week after Easter, gives a great answer. He says, my Lord and my God. The church has historically offered all sorts of elaborate answers. And usually in response to confusion or misunderstanding. It's why the creeds have gotten as long as they have. The simple creed that we hear in the Bible itself is very short. Jesus Christ is Lord. We can call this the Pauline Creed because Paul preaches it. Or the Petrine Creed. Peter preaches this even in our second reading this morning. Now the Athanasian Creed that we confessed earlier is another example of the same faith, the same belief, but elaborated to the point that it addresses specific errors about the Trinity and most specifically errors about Jesus. We hear that Jesus is uncreated, infinite, eternal. He is perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh. Jesus is not two, but one Christ, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. In other words, Jesus is not God trapped in a skin suit. Jesus has brought humanity into the Godhead itself. Not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. It's all true. Absolutely correct answers and very helpful to us in, our, in defining the limits of our doctrine. But we don't need to spend all Sunday morning in the 5th century weeds. We can instead examine Jesus' answer to this question and then use his answer to shape our own. See, Jesus' answer in our whole text for this morning comes right in the middle of a big scuffle. The Jews rejected him. They scoffed at the thought that they needed to be set free by him. They're sons of Abraham, they said in the verses preceding our text. They've never been slaves to anyone. 
which we have to laugh at this, right? The central event of Israel's history is the fact that they were slaves. Abraham's offspring all became slaves in Egypt, and they were only set free by God's gracious deliverance in the Exodus. And as we discussed in our Sunday morning Bible class, the Exodus is the backdrop for understanding all of John's gospel. Because there's a new Exodus happening, and it all centers around Jesus. There's a new Exodus and a new Israel, and it is the Israel of Jesus. Abraham's sons would have known truly that they were enslaved. So the death, so Jesus here claims that instead, Abraham is not their father. The devil is their father. And this is where today's text picks up. They hit back against Jesus' accusation with one of their own, that he's a Samaritan, the lowest of the low, a half-breed, a heretic, despicable. And on top of that, he's got to also be demon-possessed. He doesn't let this slander stand. They're liars. And rather than backing down, he makes a rather astounding claim. Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. Because he's invoking the divine name, God's name, Israel's God, Yahweh. His name is I am. They got the point here, too. You know this, that they understood what he's saying. It's not the first or the only time that Jesus claimed to be Israel's God either. But this time, they got the point so clearly that they pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. But it was not yet his time. And his time in John's Gospel would come only 11 chapters later. And they had to remind Pontius Pilate of Jesus' alleged blasphemy. Jesus' claim here about being before Abraham, about being Yahweh, Israel's God, is the reason that this passage is selected for Trinity Sunday. We, of course, confess this truth every single Sunday, every day of our Christian lives, that Jesus is God. But that's why we have this today. When well-intended, manby-pamby types like to claim that Christians, Jews, Muslims, whatever garden variety of other religions, quote, worship the same God, they're wrong. Because our God is Jesus. Co-eternal, co-equal with the Father of the same substance, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So if your God is not Jesus, no, we don't worship the same God. Just as significant as Jesus' claim here to his divine identity is the fruit of this identity for us. Through faith, we receive precisely what Jesus promises here. He says, Amen, amen, I say to you, if anyone embraces my word, he will never see death. And this brings us to the why of it all. Why is it so crucial for us to believe and confess the divinity of Jesus, the triune nature of our God? This is why. Jesus teaches this, and those who embrace this teaching, this word, will never see death. The Jews asked Jesus then, 
Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? There are so many answers to this question. Who is Jesus? In the Islamic world, he is Esau, a great prophet, the greatest prophet other than Muhammad, sent to teach the truth of God that would later be corrupted by Christians. In the Talmudic writings of today's rabbinic Judaism that followed the centuries after Jesus, Jesus is listed as a false messiah and a blasphemer. In the writings of the Roman governor Pliny the Elder, Jesus, or Crestus, as he misunderstood the name, was the leader of a strange Jewish sect who, of whom they refused to worship the emperor, who worshipped this Crestus as God and said that he was risen from the dead. And so he executed these followers to keep the Roman peace in his territory. Today's New Agers and the spiritual but not religious types see Jesus as a great moral teacher, teaching the value of acceptance, love, and forgiveness. Jesus' name is invoked any time Bible-believing Christians are accused of being intolerant or judgmental. Our culture is in for unforgivable sins. But that Jesus is the Jesus of self-esteem and pop psychology and self-help, not the Jesus that we encounter in Holy Scripture or in history. The pop culture Jesus' central message is not, is the, the, his message is be nice to everybody. But Christians are not, as Dr. Bierman commented, nice people getting together talking about how nice it is to be nice. Jesus' central message in the Scriptures directly relates to what he said here in this text. Whoever embraces my teaching will never see death. We live in a culture of rampant death denial. We don't even like to use the word. We'll say everything but, like passed on or laid to rest or went to heaven. We don't like talking about death, sometimes even in the church. I've had more than one occasion where no one, someone did not, absolutely did not want a funeral. They wanted a celebration of life. But the life we're celebrating is the life Jesus gives to us. The claim of Jesus doesn't mean much to death deniers. Death denial doesn't see any need for Jesus to come and save them. We're not slaves. We have no need of rescue. The basic spirituality of American culture today thinks that God is a nice grandfatherly type, that there is, he is there for us whenever we need him, but he asks nothing of us except that we be nice and be tolerant to others. And then if we're nice and tolerant enough, we'll go to heaven when we die. You don't need Jesus for any of that. But for those of us who have noticed that we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. For those of us whose bodies seem to have turned on them, those of us who watched the casket close for the last time, for those of us who see this, this promise of Jesus means everything to us. This promise means the world and it transforms the world around us. Everything looks different in light of Jesus' promise. 
No longer then are we alone in death's dark valley, but we have a shepherd who guides us, a father who provides for our every need, a comforter who comes and dwells with us and in us and who empowers us to embrace this word of Jesus, to literally hold on to this word of Jesus throughout each day of life's journey. This is what it means to be incorporated into the life of the Holy Trinity, living each moment of our lives with Him, through Him, in Him. You hold on to this word, and you will never see death, because that's who Jesus is, and that's what He's done for you. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding Guard your hearts and minds in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Do you rise for prayer as you're able?